You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is proud to be a part of the Airwave Media family, home of such shows as... Fork in the Road... Small Things Often, and Therapist Uncensored. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. At Monster Talk, we're always looking into mysteries, but there's one mystery which only you can provide the answer for. Who are you? Airwave Media is doing a network-wide audience survey, and we would love to learn more about you, our listeners, the people who make this show possible with your support and attention. Just go to surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave, all one word. So that's surveymonkey.com forward slash r, like the letter r, forward slash airwave. But don't worry, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Select Monster Talk from the drop-down list of shows and then fill out the simple questions to tell us more about who you are. We hope to hear from you. That's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airway. Thanks. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Belief is such a fascinating aspect of being human. We throw the word belief around with confidence that such a well and frequently used word will be understood by everyone. But the truth is that people often mean wildly different things when they say that word. In psychology, there's a concept called theory of mind that encapsulates how we as individuals extrapolate other people's inner mindsets through watching their behavior and listening to their words. But we can never really know what's going on inside other people's heads. 
Do you remember that gold dress, blue dress viral moment from a few years back when everyone was freaking out that some people could look at a photo and see a blue dress while others saw it as gold? There was a really important lesson there about the concept of qualia. That's the inner experience of thought which we can never know when someone says they see something that's yellow. What does that really mean? That's qualia. Belief being part of the mind is necessarily also mired in the complexity of our messy biology and our complex social structures. Science is perhaps our best set of tools for trying to establish an unambiguous framework for comparing and studying phenomena, but that framework requires a lot of training and expertise in order for it to be wielded in an unbiased way. And the truth is that the majority of us are not in possession of such training and we get by the best we can manage using our own experiences to craft heuristics that allow us to navigate the complex world competently without ever knowing for sure if the stuff we believe is, in fact, true. Sometimes we get very focused on that question of what's true, but here at Monster Talk we also like to keep in mind that we're all just people trying to make it through this confusing and sometimes mysterious world. Beliefs are the secret rules guiding our own behavior and the unwritten guidebook that we use to interpret the behavior of others. When personal or community beliefs are wildly out of synchronization with the mainstream, the conditions are right for conflict, drama, and sometimes even transcendent or joyful interactions. Those are the ingredients for the book, The Believer, Encounters with the Beginning, the End, and Our Place in the Middle, by Sarah Krasnostein. She takes the reader on a fascinating tour through six different stories across two continents covering a wide variety of ideas that, that include life, death, forgiveness, grief, fear, and of course, hope. You're listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Let's go talk with Sarah Krasenstein right now and hear about her book and how it came to be. Monster Dog. We welcome to the show Dr. Sarah Krasnerstein, and uh, she is a multi-award winning writer and critic. She's the best-selling author of The Trauma Cleaner, The Believer, and the quarterly essay Not Waving Drowning, uh, and a number of other books too. Very prolific author, and she holds a PhD in criminal law. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. And I'm so excited to have you on. Uh, we've got a mutual friend, Toby Ball, who we've had on Monster Talk before. And uh, you seem to be the inverse of me. Uh, I'm an Australian <laughs> living in America, and you're an American living in Australia. We've swapped. That's good. Yeah. We have, yeah. <laughs> Doing our time. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's, uh, yeah, we probably have exactly the same problems, but just flipped. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm sure. But we wanted to bring you on the show in particular to talk about your book, The Believer. It's a yeah. really fascinating book. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so much to unpack here. Uh, I mean, you've received a lot of uh, praise for the book as uh, a very empathetic book. You're very compassionate towards believers of a number of different uh, belief systems and, and just interesting topics. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping we can just delve into some of these and yeah. uh, that all of our listeners will go and buy your book. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully. Yeah, it's, it's well worth a read. I, I, I'm going to go in throughout a uh, – it's the topics are things that will be of interest to our listeners. 
and the <laughs> style is gorgeous and, and poetic and it reminds me very much of yes. uh, I, I, a few things a few books came to mind uh, some stuff by John Ronson Colin Dickey and then yeah. especially I was mm-hmm. thinking about Will Storr uh, he wrote a book called mm-hmm. Will Storr and the Supernatural which it reminds me of but uh, I like how you hop around to these different viewpoints different topics um, and you're not judgy mm-hmm. it's it's really it's 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 thoughtful and interesting and engaging yep. And I like what I, one more thing. For. Yeah, yeah. And one They're more thing. Judgy. Uh, <laughs> we like sarcasm <laughs> and snark. Uh, no, but I, I was going to say you um, you're covering topics that I think our listeners may have strong opinions on one or the other, and I think you do this in a style that's it's really it, it's you know it seems very fair to everybody. So I, I like that. That's mm-hmm. nice. So. Oh, thanks, guys. Thank you. So I guess to begin with, uh, I think. If you could tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write the book. Yeah, sure. So I, I you know, to call it a process would probably be overly generous. But um, every time <laughs> I, I embark on something that's going to be kind of a book length work, um, it, it, it really does. It's not kind of an intellectual process of setting out on a kind of quest to discover something. It's more kind of following uh, a feeling or um, an attraction to, you know, a certain kind of area or story or person. And with Mm. the Believer, it was, I literally stumbled across a full Mennonite choir singing um, down in a Bronx subway station on a very hot Mm. summer's day. And they were slightly um, bizarre and absurd because they were so optically uh, and culturally different to everyone else around them and singing their hearts out and no one was paying attention. And that's a very New York thing. But at the same time, there was something in me that really was kind of transfixed by this beautiful harmony. Um, mm. And they're not professional singers. Uh, they'd be the first to tell you that. Um, and there was something kind of in in that clash of what was going on and all of these different um, kind of lives intersecting that mm. gave me pause and Anyway, that's, uh, that was the beginning of spending a few months kind of embedded, uh, visiting with two of the families, they're Mennonite missionaries who come from a predominantly white um, town in Pennsylvania, and they had mm. kind of insinuated themselves into a Black and Latino community in the Bronx where they were uh, proselytizing quite unsuccessfully for a number of years, and kind of in the end, it seems, speaking mainly to themselves. And I wanted to understand kind of why they did that, what it meant to them, what the world looked like through their their eyes. And the more they spoke, the more it kind of touched on themes. There was a kind of a phrase that I had uh, kind of got snagged on, which I had was hearing in these other stories that I was simultaneously kind of researching, which was this can't be all there is all there is, this current life, this current mm-hmm. world, this reality, this planet isn't all there is. And so it was um, simultaneously this dissatisfaction with like daily life, um, the world as it is, and this optimism, this hope, this yearning for something different. And so in the kind of Valentich story and the ufology uh, story that I was pursuing, that was something that I heard all the time from um, UFO researchers. It was something that I was hearing from this woman who had murdered her husband, who I met right after she was released after 35 years in prison, 
Um, and she was quite religious as well, and she had said it. And so I was interesting, interested in the connections between what kind of presented on its face as very different stories about very different people. I'm just say it's another area where you and I are similar. I had a similar experience to that, to, uh, to, to your Mennonite uh, experience uh, going oh. back about maybe 10 years ago, and I encountered a group of Amish people uh, who were singing in rural Colorado and had a wow. similar experience to that. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the Amish and Mennonites are very closely related, going back to the Swiss Brethren. I'm sure you researched mm. all of that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it is it's um, quite a spiritual experience, even if you don't share the same beliefs. Uh, it's really beautiful to hear, hear them singing. It's an uh, incredible experience. I, I- yeah, I'm so glad that you that you raised that because it really is kind of this the beauty of kind of a unified um, belief system that binds these people into a community. It holds them through periods of uncertainty or injustice or fear, mm-hmm. and it's something that again, like if you buy into the entirety of any too perfect narrative or too perfect belief system, whatever it is, and you know whatever religion whatever kind of, uh, you know, area of interest, that kind of total buy-in has this beautiful, almost suspicious perfection that is so mm-hmm. attractive um, that it really is, you know, transfixing. Mm. Absolutely. I can see why it inspired an entire book. We have our regular theme song, but under the under the cover, I, like every topic we cover is more like a Roxy music because there's always that more than yeah. this, you know, theme oh, to all of this. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Huge fan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It's like, but it's true. I mean, it's like we've talked many times about um, the Bigelow airspace and, and the way they mm-hmm. want to, you know, dig into UFOs. And, and, and they're sort of presenting it like it's a an inquiry into weird technology. But the secondary question that has literally always been there is the, is there a survival of consciousness? And so for mm-hmm. uh, they always present it like it's a technology UFO question. But that secondary mm-hmm. spiritual question is always on the table, always. And yeah. I think that's, that's the... Um, Maybe it's not spoken aloud, but it's in, in. It's always there. So, yes, yeah, and I mean that was kind of there in each of these stories as well, Blake. That's that's something that I, you know, that kind of hope that mm-hmm. you know things things go on, and you know, it's 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 in all of us, and um, you know, and and that beauty that no one can say conclusively that it doesn't. So. You know, you know, who, yeah, I don't think um, mockery or, you know, proving or disproving at the level of fact is really as interesting as exploring kind of the yearning that runs beneath all these things, which in the end unites vastly different people in vastly different belief systems. You cover the arc encounter part. Yes. And you do it using the uh, geologist, I believe, uh, who is. Uh, yeah. Uh, she's a young earth creation. I've seen her interviewed many times. Um, uh, Georgia. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. I just, I found that fascinating because Ken Ham is, you know, and I, even in the book, you have to say it, it. He loves to say that molecules to man evolution, you know, like he can't just say evolution. He's got to say molecules to man evolution. And it's, it's like, it, it it's like, I know it grates on me, but, but there's something about the way you present it that kind of gave me a little bit of uh 
empathy for the attendees? Like, because I know a lot of people who mm. are, you know, very pro science go there just to kind of laugh at it. But a lot of people oh, go yeah. because it's a reification of their beliefs. They really believe these things are literally true and they're seeing it laid out and explained in ways they can understand. And they think it mm -hmm. like confirms the Bible's story. And, um, and uh, right. so you did, that's a tightrope to walk to not make fun of stuff. Um, I think that it, from a scientific perspective is ludicrous, but from a faith perspective is literally, you know, right there in the text. I mean, Bill Nye and others of that stripe have gone out there to defeat creationism with science. And that's not really my interest. Um, I, I was, again, like, you know, this is four years of my life that I spent with these themes and thinking about these people and reading about their work and meeting them. And I wouldn't do that for the purposes of mockery. I'm kind of looking for something that's more enlarging of, you know, my, my intellect and consciousness and something that kind of is more enduring than that. That's not to say that certain beliefs aren't very dangerous and they don't have immediate consequences. And I write in the book about kind of the, this hateful approach to uh, gender and sexuality difference mm. and um, all the rest of it, which is actually quite hateful and dangerous. But underneath what they are saying, which really does boil down to the fact that if, if death isn't a punishment for sin, as it is explained in the black letter of scriptural authority, then none of this living and dying makes sense. And there was something so kind of young and wounded in that um, kind of purposive reasoning that I think we can all relate to in our weaker or, you know, more desperate moments of, of wanting kind of to be told what the purpose of this is, to be told what the meaning of being here is and why we would be attached and love and then lose things. Um, there's something that's so utterly universal about that. So, yes, like, you know, we could go to the Creation Museum and the Ark and, and mock many things. Um, but underneath it, I think the more interesting question is, how is this kind of a high, high expression of a tendency that perhaps all of us, all of us have? I ask which part of Australia you're in. I'm in Melbourne right now. Okay, uh, so I I'm from Sydney, but uh, I've spent a lot of time in Queensland, and I don't know if you mm. much, but there is quite a almost like a Bible Belt there. Um, a lot of people who believe in uh, who are creationists, and uh, there are just certain areas where you, you might see a plaque or something that says, oh, this area is so many million years old and, and people have scratched it out and written 6,000 years. And it, it's just interesting to see. I mean, Ken Ham, Australian, um, and yep. it, but it, it is just amazing that there is this kind of area in Australia where there's this uh, heavy belief in creationism. Yeah, I mean, and Karen, it's so interesting because, you know, it's not kind of a religious discourse uh, is not considered a public good or a public norm in the same way as kind of religious power moves in America. Here, it's kind of not mm -hmm. included in, you know, the public discourse or what have you, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't move just as powerfully or muscularly in an in invisible way. And as you mentioned, yeah, oh, Ken literally, yeah. 
Ken Ham is a creature of that, you know, increasingly growing um, constituency that's very heavily influenced by American evangelicism. And um, right. it, it does show up in those ways. And I think it's particularly kind of interesting and has a tragic aspect when it's in Australia, where, you know, we're home to the longest continuous human cultures on earth. And, you know, our mm. indigenous population is 60,000 years old. And for that not to be enough for, for the, you know, we have to have a Western religious scriptural authority that's 6,000 years old. I mean, it, it's, you know, re reductive and, but it's secure mm -hmm. and it's predictable and it's certain and it binds people together in a group. And so we can, we can understand it, but yeah, very interesting how it presents in Australia versus America. You won't find it as much in Melbourne or Sydney, though, that's for sure. No, no. <laughs> Well, you know, we've got Ken Ham uh, came here, I think, because the uh, well, maybe he did. Maybe, I don't know why. Maybe in particular he came here, but he's um, also there was another believers, yeah. larger population. Yeah, it's like yeah. maybe it's a, a buy I, into it. I want. I don't want to say it's because we're more gullible, but it <laughs> like it did feel a little. I'll bit. let you say that. Yeah, <laughs> just joking. But we watched. Um, was it? Um, Alien Intrusion, Unmasking a Deception, a movie which featured another um, Australian um, who's doing a Young Earth Creationist program tied into aliens and UFOs. And I was like, what is going oh. on? Like, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they, they could be coming from, from the Queensland area. Yeah, uh, maybe. Where the, there's, a, yeah, there's this kind of a pocket of belief in creationism, but knowing that yeah. there's much more of a market for it here in the States. Listeners can check out episode 147 from our archives if you're interested in hearing more about this particular film and how it was presented here in the U.S. I only just add to the peculiarity um, because the 6,000-year-old Earth idea, all right, mm. and at the same time, uh, Aboriginals' archaeology shows have been there for at least 40,000, maybe as much as 60,000 yeah. years. So that's mm -hmm. amazing how they can pre... Anyway, sorry, I'm being sarcastic again. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, <laughs> the world's way more interesting, I think, and and, and, uh, and the, the literal history, the like the geological and the cultural history, you know, it stretches way back beyond that, and there's plenty of evidence for that. Right there in Australia, maybe that's mm -hmm. another reason to leave. I don't mm -hmm. know, but... <laughs> <laughs> it is peculiar. Maybe, maybe. But uh, Sarah, you write about uh, several other topics as well, and I think one that would really be close to the hearts of our listeners is mm. the story of the neurobiologist who spends his weekends ghost hunting. Yeah, Can you tell us Vlad. a little bit about that story. Yeah, so uh, Vlad Dubraj is a very, um, very lovely, very clever uh, neurophysiologist. Uh, and he's an academic and a professor. Well, he teaches at a university, um, does peer-reviewed research. Um, and at the same time, he uses his kind of free time in this ongoing, I call it a quest, to uh, try to find empirical, you know, uh, proof that to a scientific mm -hmm. standard that uh, ghosts exist. So towards that end, he, um, you know, is always going out to places where there have been kind of... Um, ghost sightings or other forms of paranormal activity and he's really been trying to get you know to that scientific standard proof of, of those occurrences so i went out with him um, not expecting to be 
as freaked out as I actually uh, was. And uh, again, kind of that, that this isn't all there is, what we see isn't all, all that there is. Um, is death mm. the end of things? Um, can we, you know, does, survive, does conscious, consciousness survive us? So those issues were at play in these various, like, you know, going to work with your ghost hunter um, excursions. And so it was Vlad and it was also Rob Tilly in that chapter, who is a, um, pa- he's a house cleaner, not like a cleaning person. He's a, he cleans. This house is clean. So he's not going to, you won't see him with a sponge, but he's, uh, and he's not an exorcist, but yes, more of this age. So he, you know, he, through a kind of discourse driven exchange, will clear your house of ghosts and bad spirits. He's been doing that for 30 years and, again, a very intelligent, um, I think, kind of psychologically aware man uh, who utterly believes in what he's doing and has helped many people. He charges to cover his costs, and if his clients can't afford it, he won't charge them. And so I went around with Rob as well, and Rob and Vlad know each other, and kind of so I got to be embedded for a little while in in that paranormal, uh, parapsychological community to see what was uh, kind of the world through their eyes. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Yeah. And was that uh, in, in Australia or America or both? That one was in Australia. Three of the book stories are in America and three are in Australia. And the um, ghost hunters were Australian. I mean, I started uh, or began my interest in that kind of thing uh, in Australia. Mm. And, and yeah, there's, there are a lot of, a lot of believers there, uh, a lot of interest uh, in Australia as well as here. And uh, yeah, I, I think sometimes people think that uh, Australians are a little bit more cynical and just yes. have a cultural tendency to, to not believe in these kinds of things, more secular as well. But uh, I feel like just in terms of um, uh, comparative population, it's still very big. They're very popular. Oh, I, I agree with that as well. And, you know, again, I don't uh, – mostly I'm just an exhausted mom uh, who works full-time <laughs> and too tired to be haunted – 
by, you know, living <laughs> by the living or the dead. Just, uh, but it did kind of make me feel good knowing that should I have, you know, any creepiness in my own house, which not for nothing was built in 1880, um, that I could call <laughs> Rob or I could call Blonde and that they would, you know, meet me with complete faith and, you know, I wouldn't be alone in that. And there's something beautiful in it. <laughs> That's it neat. would work for a lot of people. Yeah. The theme of the book is about belief. So and some of these, you know, you've got some paranormal things and non-paranormal things. What, what, how does the death doula fit within that theme? So uh, when I left the Creation Museum and the Mennonite in um, New York, I was kind of wondering whether I could find somebody who was, who approached death in a more, gentler, like a kinder, more spacious capacity that didn't necessarily view it as the enemy and could just kind of accept that, that, you know, terror, the terror or the conclusiveness or otherwise as, as just a fact of life. And so through kind of a very long research process, I, I discovered an entire profession that I had made it, you know, nearly four decades without knowing about, which was death doulas. And I knew about doulas you know, from giving birth to two children that they kind of assisted bringing life into the world. I didn't know that they also helped at the other end of life in helping people mm. die. And so Annie Whitlock was not the first death doula I spoke with, but she was the one whose life was most most powerfully spoke to um, the reason, like, how one would overcome things like injustice and trauma and um, fear and really be, you know, find it in themselves to uh, be comfortable with, with death in an entirely new way. So what I'm saying is that life hadn't been easy for her. Um, there was no kind of toxic positivity in how she viewed these, these intractable realities that we get sick and die. But um, she had, through her, you know, Tibetan Buddhist practice, arrived at a place that was so com comfortable with death and comforting in turn. So she had an entirely different um, approach to it. But at the same time, she would would tell you very strongly that this is not all there is. And she'd do that from a Buddhist perspective. Yes. So again, that's, yeah, <laughs> nothing in common with the, the others. And yet we see the same. Thing. She, she, hmm. you combine this idea uh, of this service of helping people through this process mm. with her Buddhism. And I could not stop thinking of her as the Dula Lama. Which... <laughs> uh, <laughs> we should have warned you about his punning. <laughs> so, uh, <yeah. laughs> but uh, yeah, very, very compassionate uh, part of the book mm. for sure. And, and kind of confronting, I think like the, uh, it took a while um, of speaking with Annie and, and visiting with her about a year before we found one of her, well, she doesn't call them clients. They're just people that she assists. Yeah. But before we found one who was happy to speak with me and explain why, what she was going through and why she had called on Annie, which is, you know, fair enough because these are, this is end of life for the people that she deals with and why would they want to speak to a stranger? But Katrina very much wanted to explain for others what her experience was like. And so that was a great privilege of seeing Annie helping someone, getting to know Katrina in the last six weeks of her life, um, and seeing how these these beliefs could actually sustain you enough that you could meet your death 
with open eyes was, you know, incredibly powerful, almost holy, but very terrifying. And I don't think I've procrastinated um, as much in writing uh, something as I did with, with kind of that research because I found it so confronting. Yeah. yeah. Very fascinating. Indeed. And uh, so, Sarah, this is a real labor of love, four years that you were working on this book and just so much research. Could you tell us a little bit about how you did your research? Clearly, a lot of it was uh, uh, interviews and, and hands-on going to places and uh, immersing yourself within communities. Yeah, I mean, I always start with the people. I deliberately don't go to any of the secondary kind of more paper academic-based sources before I've had the chance to show up as an ignorant, uh, awkward uh, outsider and kind of see everything through those new eyes and allow myself to kind of be guided by the person themselves who's kind of sharing their worldview. So that self-selects the kind of person that's comfortable in letting me into that degree. And they have to like me and I have to like them. And um, it looks like hanging out for a number of years. It looks like just having a chat um, and it's very circular and it's very gradual because I'm looking for change over time and I'm looking for kind of deep, thick character details. And then after that, I'll go and I'll inform myself more broadly. Um, But like the Valentich case, the lost pilot, that was very much um, based on um, speaking to his fiance first, understanding the human aspect uh, of the story before I went into the government files, before I went into the books, because I wanted to have that kind of fresh, um, those fresh eyes uh, first off to kind of ground the story. So I know we probably didn't warn you about this. So like we normally ask people a sort of a signature question as we're closing out our interviews. Um, And that is, what's your favorite monster? So, okay. So this is interesting. And I, I'm writing about it a little bit um, in the book that I'm currently working on. Um, But I had not, you know, I've been in Australia since 1994 and I had managed not to know uh, this, but in my uh, interviews with the UFO researchers, um, and there's a, a couple that in the book called Leonarders, and they have they founded the first support group in Australia for uh, abductees, alien abductees, and they kind of spoke at length with me, and they're incredibly articulate, incredibly fascinating people about the Yowie. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you guys, have you guys done anything on the Yowie? Am I a bit uh, here and there? Yeah. <laughs> okay, right. We have. So, and I've so, always wanted to speak to uh, Tim, the Yowie man. <laughs> there you go. You should have him on. Oh my god. So I, you know, had discovered through them, and then it became apparent the more kind of ufologists I spoke with that there was a crossover in Australian circles, at least, between um, those who are interested in UFOs and those who are interested in the Yowie, which is. Um, from what I understand, very similar to the Australian Bigfoot. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, although, although the way that it was described to me perpetually was that this this Yowie or Yowies were almost were very graceful in their enormousness. So they uh, are adapted to the landscape. And this is J- Jamie Leonardo who was explain- explaining it to me. They could pirouette um, on the landscape. Their foot was adapted in ways that ours isn't to this planet. 
they would build these structures either hanging from trees or, you know, teepee-like structures in the forest, and that we were incapable of seeing them because they were just so adapted to the landscape and so good at hiding. And I just thought, what a fascinating kind of pocket of reality. It, I don't, I don't uh, believe in them, but it, it was enough that when I was out in kind of the Aussie wilderness for a different story, I was live to it. I was like, well, maybe I could see one here. Maybe if I stay here long enough, I too could see that evidence and how I would love that. I'm just waiting to believe. So uh, I'd have to choose the Yowie as my, my favorite monster. Well, I, I, I've never thought of one as a pirouetting before. I haven't either. And I was going to say, that's so interesting. And I'm just wondering if there is an analogy there to the Indigenous people, to Aboriginal people, uh, and how we see them as being very connected to the earth. And uh, I've yeah. just seen that kind of link there. But, uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and kind of how, how hard and comp unnecessarily complex we have made society by, you know, mm -hmm. driving up into our... A cognitive capacities to try to reason our way out of things that perhaps mm -hmm. uh, are best just accepted. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I can't stop thinking about a Bigfoot wearing a tutu now. Uh, I'll, I, I don't oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> little, little that was the image that I had too. <laughs> <laughs> little pink tutu. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I love that answer, and I think that's the first time we've ever had the Yowie as a, an answer is. in all these years. Uh, yeah, yeah, we we certainly oh, have a spreadsheet. It's about uh, time. So, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful book, and we will mm -hmm. uh, be putting uh, links to it in the show notes, and our listeners can find this at whatever bookstore that they like to shop at, or obviously Amazon. Uh, uh, what are you working on now? What's what's next? It started off as a commission from uh, Harper's, but it's a uh, story. It'll look like a trial book about a double murder that happened at the very start of COVID um, oh. in uh, the high country uh, of Victoria. Uh, two campers, two elderly campers uh, were went missing and they weren't found for 18 months. And um, a pilot has recently was relatively recently arrested and charged uh, with their murder. So it, it, it's covering mm -hmm. that trial, but it's kind of more broadly um, an investigation of the psychological freighting of that particular landscape uh, and why we find it so eerie uh, to begin with. If anything's more popular than true crime right now, I'm not sure what it is. Certainly. And plus it fits right in with your PhD in criminal law, right? So yeah, I'm, it goes yeah. back to your oh, roots, yeah. yeah. Well, it is. I mean, all of it's kind of about the story, right? It's yeah. about character and causation <laughs> mm -hmm. and the context. And so the law is always concerned with that form of storytelling. And I, I think kind of we all are. It's not really the statistically rare acts of violence. I think we're more attracted to the elements of normality in these stories, the way, you know, it starts off where they could be anyone and, and look where it went. Mm -hmm. But I just uh, mm -hmm. want to say the high country is very interesting for in terms of monsters, because this is where we've had regular sightings of uh, the Tazi tiger, tiger, possibly by the by true believers uh, and the Black Panther, which has never been conclusively documented. And Yowie sightings mm -hmm. as well, and UFO sightings as well. So 
it's kind of live with all of these things. And, you know, I've never seen it in my trips out there, but doesn't mean that I won't encounter them in the future. So maybe, you know, I could come back if yeah. I see one. I'll bring- <laughs> Keep your eyes peeled. Well, you've, you've got a real knack for putting words together in beautiful ways. So I look forward to seeing what you do. Thanks, Beth. I'm really grateful to you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for having the show. This is super interesting. You are very welcome. Thanks for coming, joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> Bye, guys. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with author Sarah Krasnostein discussing her book, The Believer. A link to her book is in the show notes, but you can also find it at your favorite bookstore or order it online. We really enjoyed Sarah's book and suspect that you will too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will join us next week for something new. been a monster house presentation for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call click or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done